You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mike Schuff. I am privileged to serve here as one of the volunteer elders at Liberty. And uh, if you're visiting with us, let me say welcome to you. And now that you know my name, uh, you should know that I am approachable. So love to talk with you, love to meet you. And I'm glad all of you are here this morning. It's great to be in the house of the Lord, right? Come out from our busy lives, our busy worlds, and we can spend this time together uh, in the Lord, with the Spirit, with each other. So over the past weeks, we've been hearing a lot about prayer, many aspects of prayer. Uh, Hopefully this has spawned a deeper experience uh, in our praying to the end that they're more precious, they're more intimate, more effective. Um, Prayer is an amazing activity uh, to think that the smallest, from the smallest child to the most aged saint, um, all can communicate with the one who made everything and stands above all and hears our prayers. It's amazing. It's huge. It's big. Um, So we're invited to prayer. Um, We know we need prayer. We know we should pray, although sometimes we we don't want to pray. Agreed? Um, The scriptures are replete with uh, prayers and replete with encouragement and commands uh, for believers to pray, and also with examples of prayer for us. Um, The Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonian church, and he obviously is forwarded to us, pray without ceasing. And this points to our all-the-time lifestyle of prayer. He also said to the Ephesian church, as he closed out uh, the Armor of God segment, he said, pray always, pray without ceasing, pray always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, key being in the Spirit, in the will of God, with with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Greg, our church planning intern last week, he talked about our physical posture in prayer and how that can assist us with our praying, and it surely can. And uh, so I have a poem kind of goes along with this, and I'd encourage you to just smile at me and enjoy this little poem from antiquity, okay? Like back in the late 1800s. I already got some laughter, not just smiles over here, in anticipation. It's called The Prayer of Cyrus Brown. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. Nay, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing with outstretched arms and wrapped in upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Snow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. Seems to me his hands should be astutely clasped in front with both thumbs a-pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Hunt. Last year I fell in Hodgkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up, my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a-standing on my head. Thank you. Sometimes our circumstances dictate our, the posture, you know, of our praying. 
But today we're going to talk primarily about the posture of our heart. And that's what Greg also mentioned last week, uh, primarily. So our text is Luke chapter 18. I encourage you to take your Bible or take your device. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. We're also going to use Hebrews 14, uh, 4, 14 through 16, a little later in the service. I won't read that now, but uh, in those black cover Bibles, the page number is number 877, if you need to use one of those, number 8, page 877. Read with me. And he, Jesus, told, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. So the three things we want to look at today are the necessity of fear in prayer, and the necessity of grace in prayer, and the necessity of confidence in prayer. And I want to just say at the outset that Pastor Matt mentioned early when we started this series that we were uh, encouraged to use the outlines from Tim Keller's book on prayer, his touchstones on prayer. So some of the my some of my outline today does come from him. I want to give him credit for that. Some of the comments and some a bit of the content. Um, so the necessity of fear, the necessity of grace, and the necessity of confidence. So let me pray for us, Father. Thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Thank you that we can meet as your people, as your church, your blood washed children. Thank you that we. Uh, can come, and thank you that we can approach you, our holy God, and our loving Heavenly Father. And we pray that you'd just bless our time together, pray that you'd open our hearts to your word, pray that the Holy Spirit would give us spirit-filled listening, that we could take these words into our hearts, that it might change us and make it more like the Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name, amen. The necessity of fear in prayer. First of all, just a definition of fear. I think we all understand this pretty much, but what is fear? I believe it's a soul-moving reverence for God and all that He is with a desire to trust Him and to do His will. And secondly, another good definition is to stand in awe of Him and to praise Him, to give Him glory. And by the way, let me just say this. We say a lot of things are awesome our kids are awesome, our car is awesome, These, this is awesome. But there's only one that's awesome with a capital A. Can we agree on that this morning? Amen. One that's awesome, and that's our Lord. So fear is necessary because, number one, it displays a right heart attitude toward our God. And Tim Keller calls, he calls fear or praise the alpha prayer. It's where prayer begins. It comes first. It's an underlying mindset for all other prayers. It motivates all other praying. In the Alpha Prayer, we, we call out or remember His attributes like we have been here even in these songs. Another way of saying this is we bless His name. We bless His name. Psalm 34 is a good illustration of this, and there are many psalms 
But it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Verse 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Verse 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. They have no lack. When we bless him in this way, our souls are truly blessed in return. Blessing God is like saying good things about God to God. And, you know, when we, we feel great when someone says great things about us, when they compliment us, they find something notable, they find something they appreciate. Um, we kind of walk away with a quick in our step and, uh, you know, our chest puffed out, kind of we like that, makes us feel good. I believe God, our Heavenly Father, is pleased at our praise. He's pleased at our praise. And he feels those prayers. He's encouraged and he's exalted as he listens to us, lifting him up. It's that simple. And I like to say it's just loving on God. It's just loving on God as we recognize his majesty and his glory. So reverential fear in prayer displays a right heart attitude toward our God, and he deserves it. And then secondly, it displays the condition of our heart. Mal mentioned this in her liturgy. It's, and uh, it displays the condition of our heart. So when we call out and when we express his attributes, like his holiness, his power, his majesty, his justice, and his love, then it works to show us that we don't measure up to that. It works to show us our flaws. It works to show us our sin. It reveals the, the condition, the true condition of our heart. And that gives us power, or desire at least, to confess that. And, and also... It bring, in confession, it brings healing to our hearts. It brings healing to our souls. Prayer and praise changes us. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, we can't merely believe in our minds that he is loving or wise or great. We must praise him for these things if we're going to move from abstract knowledge to heart-changing engagement. I love that. And I think you would agree that we're in constant need of heart change. So prayer at its root is about looking into the face of God and coming away changed more and more into the image of Christ. And that's what Paul was after in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We're changed from glory to glory as we go to God with an unveiled face. We look to him for who he is and for our needs. Augustine said this, such is each one of us as his love. Such is each one of us as his love, or I am what I love. So I think it means that if I focus on what I love about God, I will want to be more like him. It will cause me, it will foster that desire to be more like him. Uh, JK, uh, James Smith said this way, he followed on that comment with, and I quote, ultimately we are, we are what we adore. We are what we adore. We're shaped by what we adore. You can pick your focus. What do you adore this morning? What do you emphasize in your life this morning? And I won't go down through the list. I think you can fill it in. But we are what we adore. Uh, so in our text, Luke 18, 9, Jesus tells us that some people, as they pray, trust in themselves, that they are righteous. And the Pharisee fits that bill, of course. And so we, we also remember some of the other characteristics that Jesus told us about the Pharisees. He said the Pharisees are known to do good things, 
religious things in public to be seen of men. And generally speaking, it's just religious pridefulness. And he also quoted Isaiah at one point, saying of the Pharisees, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You remember that word. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So look again at the Pharisee in verses 11 and 12. He goes, he goes to pray, but he never really prays a prayer. Uh, he, he prays to himself. He prays about himself. He merely boasts in his self-righteousness. And instead of bragging on God and exalting him for who he is and what he's done for him or what he could do for him, he brags on himself. Not an inkling of fear, not an inkling of reverence. And he's, then, then on top of that, he sets himself above all other mankind. He said, I'm not like this tax collector. Oh, no, no, I'm not like this tax collector over here. Wrong sense of fear that wants to avoid punishment, and pride that declares he's a cut above other people. He's okay. Someone said, here is total lack of humility with ruling pride and malice toward others. If you have any inkling of pride in your heart today, when I read this, you'll want to shuck it. Okay, just hold on. The Puritan George Swinock said, What reverence is due from poor dust and ashes to the God of all flesh, King of kings and Lord of lords? Ah, with what humility should a poisonous, polluted toad crawl out of the ditch into the presence of so glorious and dreadful majesty? Especially when saints approach him, they must stand in awe of him. Pretty tough stuff. Everybody take a deep, swallow deeply on that one, right? One writer said, proud, self-centered, self-conscious men and women who exalt themselves don't reverence God, they rival God. They're actually rivaling God, as though God owed them a debt. So someone suggested that maybe in order to prepare our hearts for uh, prayer, the posture of our heart, it would be a good idea to just have a conversation with ourselves before we pray. My conversation might be like, Mike, do you know... What's going to happen here? Do you know who you're going to be talking to? Realize who you're going to be talking to. Um, You're talking to the God of this universe. You're talking to the God who created everything. You're talking to the God who gave you the very breath that you breathe right now. And so forth. You're talking to the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It'll go a long way to preparing our hearts to actually praise the Lord and reverence Him. Now, in contrast, the tax collector there in verse 13, total humility. He's not looking up. He beats his chest, showing that he really knows the unworthiness of his heart. And unlike the Pharisee, he actually prays a prayer. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's reverent. He's humble. He's broken. He's transparent. He's dependent, and he's honest. He's longing. It's all there in those seven words. And I would say he shows that he possesses great faith and and grace dependence, dependence on grace. He surely wasn't trusting in himself, as Jesus said some people do. And I would say this uh, right here, uh, a special note. We're talking about a believer's prayer life here this morning, but if you're here this morning 
and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this seven-word prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is where you need to start to have a relationship with a holy God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, the Bible says. About a month ago, I providentially picked up our Lenten guide that we have during Lenten season. It was from 2021, and I was collecting info you know, for this message. But as I thumbed through it, I was reminded that Rachel Dimsky, one of our In Covenant members here, had written an article entitled The Jesus Prayer. And she said, and I quote, and I got her permission to say this today, I said, she said, I pray this prayer, the one I've been praying for nearly a decade called the Jesus Prayer, recited earnestly by blood-washed believers like me for centuries. It is widely said that these words encapsulate the heart of the gospel. Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, I think Jesus' prayers were saturated with reverence. It says in Hebrews chapter 5, who in the days of his flesh, which is all during his life, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him who was able to save him from death, was heard because of his reverence. He was heard in that he feared, the King James says. Jesus' piety formed the basis of his prayer life, and he was dependent on the favor and power of his heavenly Father. So, Why is fear necessary in prayer? It displays a right heart attitude toward God, and it in turn displays the condition of our own hearts. And then secondly, the necessity of grace in praying. What is grace? Well, there's a lot of different definitions, but we say it's the desire and the power to do God's will. And I like this one. God's unmerited favor or blessing and spiritual power uh, to live his will to live out his will with grateful hearts. There's a few key things about grace we want to talk about today. Think with me. Number one, grace reminds us that forgiveness is free. It's free. And it brings overcoming power in our life. We can't earn forgiveness. We can't ever be justified before God on our own merits, as Jesus said about the Pharisee, by checking off religious do's or don'ts or uh, formula. Uh, it's classic legalism. And in our text, Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Why? Simply because he humbled himself and cast himself on the grace of God. And this actually, this actually instructs us to repent of self-righteousness, to repent of self-sufficiency. Martin Luther said this, goes along with this. He said, we know we are loved and accepted in spite of our sins, and that makes it far easier to admit and repent of our sin and our flaws and our faults when we know we are loved and accepted in the beloved. When we have a solid awareness of the freedom of God's forgiveness in the gospel, then repentance is changed from a means of earning forgiveness into a means of honoring God and aligning ourselves with him. And Alistair Begg said this in a devotional that I read, and I paraphrase. He said, we live in a world that lives on the principle that you get what you deserve. Good or bad, you get what you deserve. You get what you've earned. But when we come to God, who's rich in mercy and grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. 
From him we get what we've earned, what he has earned, forgiveness. So when our hearts are hurting, perhaps we've made a mess of things, we're being blasted by the effects of our sin, we can cry out to God, Lord, I so need your favor. I so need your unmerited favor. I need your kindness. I I can't commend anything to myself. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. And he will, and he does. John chapter 8, Jesus told the story. There was a posse of self-righteous Pharisees who brought a woman uh, to Jesus who was um, caught in adultery. And Jesus told them, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And they were convicted of their own sin, and they walked away. They disappeared into the distance. And he said to her, has no man condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And listen, he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. What power, what freedom she received from the lips of Jesus. Probably the best day of her life. The Lord showed her great grace. So recognizing and applying grace in our praying is necessary because it reminds us that forgiveness is free and it gives us power then to do His will. Secondly, grace reminds us, though, of the costliness of our sin. The danger of focusing on freedom and forgiveness and grace is that it takes it helps it causes us to take sin lightly and minimize the cost. Martin Lloyd Jones once said in a sermon, uh, he said, quote, forgiving sin is the greatest problem the just and holy God ever faced. He quickly had to he quickly had to clarify that because for a lot of different reasons, because nothing's too hard for God. But his point was, quote, sins are debts that must be paid. To forgive debt means to, we must absorb the cost and bear the payment, even in our personal relationships. When we offer forgiveness to someone, we have to bear that on ourselves. And that's what Jesus did for us. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Jesus bearing the weight, absorbing the cost. The great transfer, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness, his imputed righteousness. Hallelujah. John Owen said the truths of the gospel of grace, such as Jesus' dying love, his unconditional commitment to us, his costly sacrifice, our adoption into God's family, makes sin itself hateful in our eyes. This is what changes us from the inside out. This transforms us by the renewing of our mind. Grace gives us power not only to confess, but to forsake the sin. Go and sin no more. So grace causes us to think when tempted and when we actually fall into sin. It helps us to think, how can I do this? How can I sin against Jesus? How can I treat Jesus this way? That's what it should cause us. It's what grace helps us to do, to say in our hearts when we're tempted and when we fall into sin. Kind of the mindset that Joseph had when Potiphar's wife uh, pursued him day after day, saying, lie with me, lie with me. And Joseph's response was, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph had that mindset because God was huge in his mind. He knew God had put him where he was and given him everything that he had. So in summary then, our prayers should come with grateful hearts 
thanking God for his grace, his unmerited favor and power, for the access that we have with him, for his free forgiveness, his costly sacrifice that has secured everything for us in Christ. So we have to ask ourselves, if someone were listening into our prayer room or wherever we pray, would my prayers sound more like the Pharisee or more like the tax collector? Is my heart posture in praying or not praying? Not praying, by the way, is the ultimate sign of self-sufficiency when we don't feel like we even need to pray. Is my, are my prayers, so, do they show self-sufficiency? Do they show self-reliance? Are they merit-driven, trying to gain favor from God? Or is my posture more of dependence on his mercy and grace alone? Good question. So we're seeing the necessity of a balance of fear of God and the favor of God in our prayers. And then thirdly today, to make it very very much more practical in our spiritual life and our growth, the necessity of confidence. And this was also mentioned already in the service. But for that, we want to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I believe they're going to put it up on the screen. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but I'm going to refer to it. The necessity of confidence in prayer, number one, confidence in Jesus as our high priest. Jesus is high priest, verses 14 and 15. Now Aaron, Moses' brother, was high priest in Israel. He was a type of the high priest, Jesus. The high priest's role was twofold. It was to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. Because Jesus was, quote, made like his brothers, human, he qualified as a faithful, merciful high priest. Because he suffered when tempted in all ways, yet without sin, he's able to help us, help those being tempted. And Jesus is a sympathetic, merciful high priest who knows human infirmities. He interacted with a full range of sinful temptations. Can you imagine that? The Son of God in his humanity. He interacted with that full range of sin and temptation. Have you ever gone to someone to, uh, to see someone with some difficulty you were facing? Uh, maybe some sin you're dealing with. Uh, you're hurting, you're spent, you're exasperated, you're defeated, and you talk with this person, and you, you come away, you pour out your heart, and you come away feeling like they didn't identify with you. They maybe look right through you. They don't get it. Maybe they don't understand, but they don't get it. And now you feel like, man, I shouldn't have even gone. I shouldn't have even told them. How embarrassing. That's happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you. How disheartening, disheartening that is. Well, I want to tell us this morning, remind us this morning that Jesus gets it. He understands. He gets us. So it says in verse 14, you'll notice, since then we have this kind of high priest. Let us then have confidence to draw near to him. Our sacrificial, substitutionary, sympathetic high priest along with the Holy Spirit at this throne of grace. Now, throne speaks of authority, but this isn't a tribunal of justice, a meeting out punishment. Matthew Henry said it this way, it's a throne where grace reigns. It's a place of great encouragement for sinners where grace acts with sovereign freedom, power, and bounty. 
How encouraging, how encouraging is that? Now, I don't know about you, but this throne of grace thing, hard to get my mind wrapped around that. It's huge. It's big. Hard to, hard to identify with. Actually, I think it's Jesus. He's the, he is the throne. But I got to thinking about this. You know, how can... It's difficult for me to understand grace pouring out of someplace like that or pouring out of Jesus. Um, like, I want to get some on me. I want to get some in me. I want to take some with me to help me with my needs. I need power. So I thought of this illustration. Barb and I go away every May, and we went down to a little town called Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. And uh, we didn't know anything about this, but we pulled into uh, Berkeley Springs, and there was a a park there, and in the park there was this long concrete building, and it had individual rooms, bathing rooms that were private, and it cost $5 to go in there. They were filled with hot mineral water, four feet deep. Maybe some of you know about this. Never saw this before in our lives. I said, let's do it. And Barbara's like, not so sure. But we got ready, and we went in there. We paid our $5. They gave us towels. It was private. Like I said, the glass was smoked on the windows. Nobody could see us. It was our anniversary, so you know what I mean. (laughs) And uh, so we went in there, soothing, hot, mineral water, relaxing, one to stay all day. But we couldn't. It would have cost us more than $5, probably. <laughs> We're cheap. The background was that people would come from all over to go there and get in that water and it would bring healing from their ailments. I don't know. I didn't feel any healing, but it felt good. You say, what are you talking about, Mike? It's like grace, freely provided by God, pouring out of those mountains, captured by those folks at some cost made available at a price, made available to all who would come and take advantage of that time. What a blessing that was. What a blessing grace is. Reminds me of the song, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. Now, I asked this in the first service. I'll ask it again. How many of you know the hymn, Wonderful Grace of Jesus? Raise your hand. Hey, you guys go back further than the early crowd, I tell you. (laughs) Had about four in the early service. But listen to me. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall my praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. Wonderful the grace of Jesus reaches me. I'm having a hard time not singing this. Wonderful, the chorus is, wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all-sufficient grace for even me, broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise his name. And all God's people said? Amen. I hope so. What grace. I mean, I'm just trying to use words to describe this. It's so awesome. And I know you know it is. So we can have confidence at the throne of grace because Jesus is our high priest. He's our advocate. He's full of grace. He's our intercessor. I don't understand it, how he can do that, but he does. He's our God. 
And then secondly, we can have confidence that in Jesus, our greatest need, needs can be met. Now, don't miss this. Here we see that we can draw near as adopted children with confidence and take grace into our hearts. What is, I ask the question, what is our greatest need? We can go there and get help in time of need. What is our greatest need? And I'd like to just refer to Paul's prayer. I think he says it best in Ephesians chapter 3, in his prayer to the Ephesians and thus to us. He said, I bow my knees before the Father that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being, in your inner man. I believe that, folks, is our greatest need, to be strengthened in our inner man. Paul had just, uh, for three chapters, explained, used the word riches, I think, at least four times, maybe five times. But Ephesians 1.3 says, He has blessed us in Christ with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. I mean redemption, inheritance, adoption, you name it. We're loaded. We're wealthy. But we don't live like it many times. Can I remind us that our greatest need is to have power in our inner man to live the life that corresponds with the wealth that we've already been given in Jesus? Can I just remind us of that this morning? to live up to who we are in Jesus. We're wealthy. We're over the top, all by his matchless grace. So practically speaking, instead of just praying for specific things, praying for people that they wouldn't get sick, it's good, good to pray for that, or praying that if they are sick, they'd get well, we need to pray for that, or that their car wouldn't break down on vacation, or that their granddaughter would get the right coach on her softball team. All those things. But listen, folks, it's more valuable and carries eternal value to pray prayers like, Lord, help so-and-so to understand your will. Give them spiritual wisdom. Help them to please and honor you. Lord, help them to show the love of Christ to their coworkers at work. Fill them with strength in their inner being so that they can walk in the Spirit with you. Help them to endure in the faith. I heard recently about someone who professed to know Christ for many decades, and yet they're struggling with their faith. Is it real? Should I just let it all go? Pray that they'll endure. Pray that their faith would endure. And maybe sometimes, more often than we like to think, we need to be praying for someone that their eyes would be open to their sin and their separation from God, and their eyes would be open to the gift of the gospel of grace, and then be willing to be involved in helping them understand that. So as much as Paul was concerned about the physical well-being of people, he raised money for the saints at Jerusalem. He healed people from physical ailments by the laying on of hands. We see that in the book of Acts. He focused in his prayers in Ephesians and Colossians on the spiritual on the spiritual, almost 100%. So there's a lot of illustrations of this, but I want to just focus in on one. In Matthew chapter 6, we have Jesus talking about how to the disciples about how the Jews were anxious about everything. You might remember this. They're anxious about food, what they're going to eat. They're anxious about their clothes. They're anxious about what's going to happen tomorrow. Even though they couldn't add one hour to their life. They're anxious about tomorrow. 
He said Gentiles or unbelievers pray like that. They pray for those things. He said, but your father knows what needs you have. And I have another little poem. Would you like to hear it? Said the robin to the sparrow. You with me? Don't lose me now. This is heavy. Said the robin to the sparrow. I surely would like to know why these humans run around and worry so. And said the sparrow to the robin, well, I think it surely must be that they don't have a heavenly father to take care of them like you and me. But we do, don't we? We do. Simple but powerful. So what was Jesus trying to say? Well, he finishes up that discourse by saying, but you, they worry about those things, but you focus on the kingdom of God. You focus on, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. They'll be added to you. He'll take care of you. It might not be what you want or expect, but he'll take care of you. You put him first, his lordship in your life, his kingdom in your heart. Great lesson. That's our greatest need. I recently read, uh, and I witnessed this over many years, and experienced it in my own life at times. Many Christians don't get to this point in their walk with God, where they experience the, the overcoming power of God in their inner spirit, and they suffer for it. Their marriages suffer for it. Their relationships suffer. The church suffers. The world suffers for it. Being weak in our inner man is the reason for making sinful decisions, for uh, unresolved issues in our marriage many times, often the cause of financial difficulties, and on the flip side, difficulties in handling prosperity. Uh, it, It can be the reason for not suffering well, not growing in our inner man as we suffer, not taking it as uh, from the Lord. And then also, we don't die well with the right heart attitude. So Paul says the outward man is perishing, but the inward man can be renewed day by day, right? And the question is, is our heart being renewed day by day? This is our greatest need. And we can go to the throne of grace. Let me challenge us to always make the focus of our prayers more on the eternal and not on the temporal, not on the nasty now now. And so whatever the need is, because of Jesus, we can approach this throne of grace with total confidence, and we can expect to be met with grace and power. Paul Miller, in his book, The Praying Life, said this, we look at the inadequacy of our praying. None of us feel adequate. I'll preface it by saying that. We look at the inadequacy of our praying and give up, thinking something is wrong with us. God looks at the adequacy of his son and delights in our sloppy, meandering prayers. That helps us, doesn't it? (laughs) Because we all feel inadequate. But he delights in He delights in our prayers, no matter what they are. So in our praying, let's repent of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. Let's relish in the standing that we have in him in grace. Let's come confidently and embrace the grace that's available that we so desperately need. My prayer is that, that our prayers be filled 
with grace and confidence to meet all of our needs. So we've been asked to give some practical help in these sermons. My practical help would be this, if you want to jot them down or just make a special mental note. My practical element would be make a list of the attributes of God. Use a concordance or whatever you need to to use. Go through the scriptures. Write down every time you see an attribute of God. Use them in your prayers. Help them to develop a deep reverence for the one you're speaking to. Then make a list of every time you see evidence of God's grace, which is all over the place. You might want to start early in the morning and be prepared to stay up late. (laughs) There's a lot of grace. It's all grace. And begin to use that to shape your prayers. Just Just a little something to think on. And then you might want to use Psalm 95. There's a lot of psalms, but Psalm 95 and 96, and this passage that I referred to, Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, would be a good example, a good prayer guide. So I hope that's helpful. And it's been good to speak to you today. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. God, you love to see our our hearts glowing toward you. Uh, This morning, we do lift you up in reverence and fear. Uh, We thank you for your sufficient grace. Oh, my. I thank you. I pray that our prayer lives uh, would truly be not rote and mechanical, but life-changing, heartfelt in the days that lie ahead by your Spirit. And Lord, now as we prepare to come to the table, uh, prepare our hearts and remind us again of the preciousness of of this sacrifice and the opportunity we have to have this communion with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.